Praise God. Good morning, Christ Chapel. How are you? Good, good. Love that I'm getting to be here with you. Honored and privileged to get to open up God's Word with you. Special greetings. Good morning to the Internet Campus, those of you worshiping online, to West Campus, to the Hive, to South Campus, to Converge over in the chapel. We love you. Uh, you're going to need a Bible this morning. Uh, we've got a lot of rich stuff to jump into, and so grab a Bible, and we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount is all about perspective shift, right? It's all about this idea of Jesus standing, delivering a sermon, and really shifting everyone's perspective uh, from what they knew to uh, now the kingdom that he's ushering in. The, the series title, Upside Down, has been so appropriate because that's exactly uh, what's happening, right? To, to people, he's, he's flipping everything they believed upside down, uh, at least to the people who are paying attention to it. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing because our world is broken. Uh, our world is backwards. And so let me set the context before we jump into chapter 6, verse 25. And really the context coming out of Cody's sermon from last week, uh, right, right above this, uh, Jesus preaches a, a part of the sermon where he talks about not laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. And so he, he makes this point, um, don't hoard materialism functionally. Don't find your hope and your satisfaction. Don't find your ultimately your God in, in what you can store up for yourself, but instead store up for yourself uh, treasures in heaven. And, and Cody talked about this idea of the kingdom economics that Jesus is ushering in. And I love the fact that if, if that's the message that's preached to me from Jesus on a, on a mountain, and he preaches this message of don't hoard, you know, don't, don't gather all of these things just to find my security in what I have, I think the next logical progression in my mind, in my heart, would be, well, what, what if I run out of money? Right? What if I don't have enough? If I'm not storing up for myself, I'm not hoarding and saving and gathering as much as I can to insulate and to protect and find my comfort in what I can hoard, well, then what if one day I look up and I don't have enough? What if I can't provide? What if I don't have clothes? What if I don't have food to eat? And Jesus knows this, and Jesus speaks directly into that. And so straight out of the context of of Jesus' commands to not to store up treasures in heaven and not here on the earth, he then follows up with this idea, this solution to the anxiety that then uh, raises in all of us. Uh, it is an anxiety-producing idea to say, well, wait, I have to trust. I have to trust. I, I, I can't just insulate myself. And so he answers that here. Let's look at just verse 25. Verse 25 of chapter 6. This is what, this is what Jesus says. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you'll put on is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. What's Jesus doing here? What's he doing? He knows. He knows that we are prone to anxiety. He knows that his people are going to be prone to anxiety, especially in the context of the sermon that he's delivering them to, to us. And he knows that we are going to worry about the things that we can't control. And, and isn't that at the core of the definition of anxiety in my life? Trying to control the things that I am not designed to control. Feeling out of control. Uh, a friend of mine and a counselor in Fort Worth, uh, he has this kind of working definition of, of anxiety for himself, which is trying to solve problems that don't exist yet. Which is so true. And that's what's happening here. Right? They're saying, what will I eat? What if I don't have food? Well, they have food, but they're saying, but what if, what if I don't have food? What if I don't have clothes? What if I get sick? What about my body? What if, what if, what if? And, and this anxiety 
in their life, in our life, it becomes this, this it can become this low-grade just hum, this low-grade leaking in my life, my daily life. And at times, it's loud. It's not low-grade hum. It's this loud white noise that's affecting me. The, the what-ifs, the things I can't control, the stress and the anxiety of, of the what-ifs in my life that are problems that I can't yet control and maybe don't even yet have in front of me. And, and at times, maybe I'm not even aware. Maybe you're not even aware of this anxiety, but we all struggle with it. And others, you're very aware. Right? There's some people here who are very aware. It's not a white noise. It's a, it's a paralyzing fear that grabs us. That, that we wish we could control, we wish we could just pray away, but it grabs us. And anxiety anywhere on that spectrum affects us, affects all of us. Um, we all deal with it. We all have ways we cope with it in different ways. And, and anxiety isn't inherently sinful, right? We see Jesus, uh, Jesus experienced anxiety in the garden. Um, but the word here that Jesus uses in the Greek is the same word that he uses for worry. And so it's this idea of anxiety, worry. In fact, if you have a New American Standard Bible, they just translate verse 25 as do not worry. It's pervasive. It's debilitating at times. And so Jesus offers here in this, the end of chapter 6, this perspective, right, a solution here for that anxiety. He offers us a solution, and that solution is look at this new perspective, Look at this new perspective that is a solution. And he, he doesn't just offer it. Christ commands it, right? Christ commands a new perspective as a solution to our anxiety. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. He doesn't say, hey, if you get around to it, maybe dial it back. No, he commands us. He says, do not be anxious. And he's offering this new perspective as a way to do that. And that's not easy, church. That's not easy. That's not a, a, a switch we flip. Um, that takes work, and he's about to unpack what this powerful, powerful perspective is, um, because if understood and if applied, it does change anxiety. Let me illustrate this this way. Um, perspective changes your experience. And so the idea of Christ offering a different perspective as a solution makes so much sense if we realize the weight and the importance of how important it is to have a proper perspective. If you, buy, if you go to a concert and you buy nosebleed seats or if you buy front row seats, your perspective in that concert is going to shape your experience. I want to illustrate it this way, just so you have a visual in, in your head. Let's say you walk in uh, to church uh, and just to illustrate perspective changing your experience. You walk into church and this amazing team that sets everything up, instead of setting it up this way on this Sunday, they set it up like this. And then we go on and we preach and we preach our sermons and we talk about truth and we talk about the perspective we are called to have. We talk about the freedom that's in there. We talk about the word of God and how powerful it is. But, but obviously your perspective, your perspective massively changes your experience. And obviously poorly because that's my bad side. <clears throat> perspective changes everything. So what do we do? What is it? What does this perspective look like? How do we do that? How do we walk in to that? Let me show you. Um, and, and before I do, let me give one more caveat. And I think this is important. This has been on my heart, honestly, all week as I've, I've prepped this. A uh, quick caveat. One thing uh, I, th I think just to clarify, very importantly, in that, that big idea, this idea that Christ commands a new perspective as a solution to our anxiety. That word, a solution, uh, is really important for me and I, I think for us to understand um, because I think there's a lot of times 
when we're looking at anxiety or really any, uh, anything that could become a, a mental disorder or just a debilitating thing that's in our mind and heart and we can't quite wrap our minds around it, whether it's anxiety or depression, whatever that looks like, I think at times we have a tendency to oversimplify that. Uh, just as, as humans, we, we just want to fix things. We want to help our friends. And so I think there's a lot of well-intended, well-intended believers, followers of Jesus, who, who in, in a great way are really meaning to help and support. And they say, well, so all you got to do is just believe, right? I mean, Jesus says don't do it, so don't do it. And it becomes this almost over, uh, oversimplified solution to say, well, that's what Jesus says, so just do that. And if you've ever seen the comedy sketch, there's a therapist, it's Bob Newhart, and basically his whole remedy for people who come into his office is he just yells at them, stop it. Right? They tell him their problems, and he just yells at it, stop it. And sometimes it feels like um, the church, the, the bigger C church, means well, but they, they oversimplify. The reality of anxiety, anxiety disorders, uh, depression, some of those, those things, they're hard, complicated issues. There's trauma that happens. There's chemicals in our brain that God designed, but then broken world we live in affects those things. And so I want to be really careful that we don't just oversimplify this. Uh, I've got well very loving people who've just said, oh, all you have to do is, is just believe. Um, I grew up with asthma, right? I grew up with asthma, and you know, the halftime at a football game in middle school or high school, I'm taking my inhaler. Nobody's like, oh, man, it's just a lack of faith, you know? It's a lack of faith. You just should believe more, right? We, we see medicine at times and counseling and psychiatry and these things as a tool that God uses. As God's grace, we see them as those things uh, and so I don't want to oversimplify those things. Anxiety is complicated. But at the same time, we can stand up here and we can preach God's word authoritatively and its applications boldly for our lives in a way that God has provided a solution to anxiety through this perspective in his word. And we can preach that authoritatively and apply it to our lives and walk out of here confidently. And that doesn't take anything away from science, which is God's or medicine, which is the grace of God, or counseling or psychiatry. So I want you to know that, and I want you to be discerning in that and hold those tensions, uh, not just in your own life as, as you seek um, potentially freedom from those things, but also as we counsel others. Okay, I've got to hold on to uh, this perspective, right? That's a, that's a challenge we run into. Um, look at verse 26 through 30. He's going to give you part one of what this new perspective is. What it is. Part one, Matthew 6, 26 through 30. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these." But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? God has a track record of provision. God has a track record of provision. The perspective that Jesus is sharing starts there. Understand, remember, realize, see properly the track record of God. You see what he's doing? His, his track record in creation is clear. Birds, they don't hoard, they wake up and they've got nothing. They've got no pantry, no refrigerator, no food. They wake up and they have nothing and yet God provides for them. Flowers, 
right? The Botanic Garden is full of beautiful flowers right now. It's spring. But one day, those flowers won't hold their petals. They'll wither. Their petals will fall. And yet, in the right time, in the right season, God will restore that and they will bloom again. God's design is, is that these elements of creation are provided for, that they will be sustained, that they will thrive. And then he's making the point, and you're way more valuable than they are. You are significantly more valuable than the birds and the flowers. And if he does that, if his track record for creation is that, how much more does he love you? Does he value you? He says, I will provide for my kids. Do you believe his word? I will provide for my kids. And, and let me make a, just a clarifying comment, a distinction. Provision, provision doesn't mean prosperity and comfort right? Provision doesn't mean prosperity and comfort in the sense of if somebody ever tells you, oh man, you just need to get rid of all of your possessions. And if you do, he's going to repay you fourfold and give you a Lamborghini, right? If you ever find yourself in that community, run, right? Run. That's not, that's what what provision means. And even prosperity uh, doesn't even equate to a lack of anxiety. The most prosperous nations in the world are also, uh, have the highest rate of clinical mental illness and anxiety disorders, But he does say, I will give you enough. I will provide. I will give you enough. And there's such sweetness to the God of the universe speaking that over us, giving us that promise. And you know, so much of my piece where it comes from in that idea is I don't even think I really know what I need. I think I know what I need. But when I look at my track record, I don't really know what I need. There are times in my life where I have have said, God, I need this. Um, I, 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 this is what I need, God, you need to open this door, and this is what I need, and, and God hasn't done that. And I look back, and I think, wow, God, you, I dodged a bullet. You knew better than I did what I was asking for. What I really, really wanted, you knew better than I did. And that perspective that he has that I don't, or times that he gave me things that I didn't even ask for, didn't even think I wanted or knew I needed, and yet I look back and I think, wow, God, You provided in a way I wasn't even asking for. Look at you. I think that gives me such peace to know that I don't even know what I need so often. We don't, but he does. I've got to hold on to this this perspective. And so here's my question. Are you remembering? Are you remembering God's character and God's provision? Am I applying that to my life? Is that not just a perspective I hear at church and I check that box and I think, yeah, he's going to do it. But am I remembering? Do I leave the walls of these campuses or turn off the internet when it's done and and then go about my life and immediately forget the promises of what he said he was going to do. Remembering is hard. It really is. I know it sounds ridiculous, but remembering is hard. And we'll talk about why it's hard in just a second. Uh, But look at the Old Testament. The Old Testament is literally full of stories of God's people, the Israelite people, who God does miraculous things for, provides for in incredible ways. Uh, time after time after time, takes them through hard things, and then they forget. And it's God reminding them, sending a prophet, showing them, remember who I am. Uh, the, the Israelites, when they're in captivity in Egypt for hundreds of years, Moses shows up, saves them. All of this amazing stuff God does through Moses, 10 plagues. They get set, Pharaoh says, get them out of here. They're free. Take them. They leave. Pharaoh changes his mind. The Red Sea parts. They go through the Red Sea miraculously. After seeing God just flex his muscle for 
10 plagues and then walk through the Red Sea. Then their enemies follow after them. The sea closes in. They're freed. They're set free. Exodus 15 is this chapter. It's a song that they write when they get to the other side of the Red Sea. And they're just going crazy with excitement. God, what have you done for us? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Look how you provided. Look how you've saved us. Exodus 16 is literally them saying, what are we doing here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt? We want to go back. It's them immediately forgetting and grumbling. Right? Several chapters later, they, they literally forget their God, and they go and they build a, a golden calf to worship that. Right? They're going to worship that because that I can wrap my hands around. Right? God's people are constantly forgetting how God has provided and what he's done and turning to other things that they can control that they can get their hands on and, and reduce that provision to something they can get their hands on and they can see tangibly. We do that all the time today. Right? We try to find an easy way, an easy way to, to control what we're not actually designed to control. Reduce God to something we can wrap our hands around. Maybe it's our checking account. Maybe it's our popularity, maybe it's uh, our success at work, whatever it is that we can find our satisfaction in, we forget his record. We forget his character to us as his kids. Let me ask you, how much energy, how much energy do you spend worrying about the things that you can't control? And how much time and energy is going towards, look what he has done in my life. I'm convicted by that question personally. How much of my time and energy, even just subconsciously, when I'm in the car worrying about the things I can't control, as opposed to I, I want that to be a flag in my head to then say, wait, how much time have I spent today just remembering what you've done for me, God? What you've done and how you've blessed me and how you've showed up time and time and time and time again. So real tangibly, real tangibly, we apply this Remember God's character. Remember God's provision. Set tangible reminders throughout your day. Do that. Set reminders. Put them on your phone as a reminder. Remind yourself of what God's done. Get a note. If you're a journaler, journal about the things that God has shown up and how he's shown up in sweet ways as, as ammo to battle the enemy when it comes after you with, with worry and anxiety. God's saying, remind yourself of my track record. Uh, Ebenezer stone is this term that, the, that was coined in the Old Testament. When the Israelites went through the Jordan to finally arrive at the promised land, they picked up these stones and they stacked them um, on, on the other side, on the promised land, and they stacked them there to be a reminder. An Ebenezer stone, this idea of a stone of remembrance. So they would look back years from then and say, wow, remember when we walked through the Jordan. Remember when God brought us here. Create Ebenezer stones in your life. We're designed for it, but we're prone to forget. Put sticky notes on your mirror, reminders on your phone, whatever it takes that we would be people who shape our perspective around remembering what he's done and who he is. And then also, real tangibly, be in a community that helps remind you of those things. That's what the church is. But this idea of let's remind ourselves of what is true and what is true about him and what he's done for us. And so continue to gather, continue to be known in community where, where when you forget, you have somebody who knows you and loves you enough to speak into your life. Remember what he's done. Let me transition into what Christ warns us to reject. Verses 31 and 32 of this chapter. Therefore, do not be anxious 
saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them all. What, what that idea of Gentiles uh, represents and represented was the non-believing world. And so what Christ is saying here is the non-believing world is asking these questions. These are the questions that is leading and guiding and steering the non-believing world. That's not you. It reminds me of Paul's command in Romans 12 too, where he says, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, right? A non-believing world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We live in this, this world that is constantly throwing these questions at us um, that really just produce a track record of fear. That's the world's track record. If God's track record is provision, the world's track record is a record of fear. Remember when I said I would explain to you why I think it is that we are so quick to forget our perspective? Why remembering is so hard? It's because of this. It's because the world we live in, right, is drowning us in the noise and fear of an unending list of things we can't control, but we should definitely be afraid of. And I know this, we've beat this horse to death in the last year or so, but the 24-hour news cycle is just such a great, tangible, external example, right? Whenever news stations decided we're gonna stay on for 24 hours, it's run by people who say, okay, what's the maximum amount of viewers we can have to have the maximum amount of ad revenue generated? So how do we keep people dialed in? And it's fear, it's fear. Breaking news, the world is broken, guys. It, the world is broken. And we're gonna live in a world that's going to continue to focus on that, focus on that, focus on that, and draw us into that. Um, and that's dangerous. And it's not just the external, right? It's internal. I wish it was just external. I could just turn off my TV. It's an internal monologue that's playing in my head, playing in our hearts, saying, asking these questions like the non-believing world. Well, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not worthy enough or valuable enough. I, I can't do this. Questions like, I haven't found the one. Um, maybe I'm going to be alone. Or, or I've, I've married it, but maybe, I, maybe it's the wrong one. Or, or my kids or my grandkids and these worries. What if I get sick? What if I lose my job? What if, what if I'm not loved? What if I'm not accepted? All of these things bombard us in the world that we live in. And at the root of that, Jesus is pointing out the kingdom of this world, the Gentiles, the values of this world are built on something that is so insecure, right? Every ever-changing, never-satisfying, right? It's, it is playing Jenga in a bounce house. That's our world. And, there, and, and it's constantly moving and shifting. Think about the world we live in. What success looks like is a constant moving target. Depending on your vocation or the season or the decade, what success looks like changes. What beauty looks like is a constantly changing thing that our world would redefine. Um, what truth even is, is up for grabs in our world for anyone who wants to define it however they want to. What happiness looks like is a constantly moving target. As we look for freedom, from the anxiety that crops up in our lives, do we acknowledge the anxiety-producing world that we live in, that we're immersed in? And Jesus is telling us to be aware of it. And not just be aware of it, he's telling us to filter. Filter. Don't be like the Gentiles, the non-believing world. These are the questions they ask. So are you filtering the insecurities and the lies of the world? Real tangibly, you want a solution to your anxiety? Are you remembering God's track record? And are you filtering the lies that are getting thrown at you left and right. Um, I am not 
a gardener, but my mom is, which means I did a lot of gardening chores growing up. Uh, and, and one of the things that I remember I'd have to do every once in a while is there'd be a flower bed that maybe we were creating from scratch, or maybe it was a flower bed that we hadn't dealt with in a while. There's weeds everywhere. You would really dig up that flower bed, and you'd, you'd take out kind of all of that soil, all of those weeds, and then you'd get this meshing, and you'd put that meshing down in the flower bed and maybe pin it in, and then you'd get good fresh topsoil that didn't have weeds and didn't have seeds of weeds in it, and then you'd cover on top of that meshing the, the topsoil. That was one of my chores growing up. Um, and, and I think about that often as I think about anxiety as this weed that grows up and are we filtering it out so the weeds can't grow up through that, that you can plant things in there and, and it's protected. Are you filtering out? Are you discerning the lies that the world will tell you, the fear-inducing values the, the world commands you to prioritize? And in order to do that, in order to filter and reject, you have to be in this. Or you have to be in God's word. In order to really have some, you can't filter if you don't have a grid. And so this becomes our unchanging authoritative grid that we stand on and build our life on and remind us of his character and remind us of the lies and remind us of who I am in light of what he has said and what he has done for me, what he has given me through Christ. We've got to filter. And in order to filter, you've got to be in this thing or else you have no grid to filter. You have no grid that's at least not unchanging. Other real practical way, um, you're probably going to need to turn some things off too. Right? When we talk about practically, how are we going to filter? You've got to be in this, but also you probably need to turn down some things in your life too. Turn off some things. Turn off some things that you're listening to that are just feeding you what the world would value. Um, Maybe it's even communities or, or you're in a group of friends and maybe you just need to reform that group and say, guys, every time, if, if you're in a community or, or a conversation or you're watching something on TV or on social media and every time you leave that feed, social media feed or show that you watched or, or specific gathering you had, if you leave and you are just fearful, you are just on fire with how much fear there is, how many things there are to be worried about and be afraid, that's probably something that you're going to need to start filtering. You're going to need to start protecting yourself from. And it doesn't mean, listen to me, it doesn't mean we put our head in the sand and we pretend everything is good and we only listen to positive narratives. That's not what this means. That's not what we're saying. Let's just be positive. No, what then? Because we don't want to just be optimistic fools who are blind to brokenness or even opportunities for us to step in. So what then? We have to focus on something, right? We don't just shut it out for the sake of optimism. We focus on something, and we focus on the right thing. Christ is teaching us what this perspective looks like, is remembering what he's done, remembering what is behind you, remembering what is done, filtering out the lies of the world and remembering that, and then seeking, focusing. Look at Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. His kingdom is the only worthy option for our focus. God's kingdom, what he is doing, what Christ is doing, is the only worthy thing for us to be able to focus on. God's kingdom is is really being unpacked in the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most uh, clear places that we see, well, what is God's kingdom? It, these three chapters of Matthew 
is an unpacking. I've heard multiple pastors say this, but I remember the first time I heard Matt Lance, um, West Campus pastor, uh, talk through what his perspective of the Sermon on the Mount as, as really this inaugural, inaugural address of Jesus, right? Jesus has, has shown up. He has been baptized. The Spirit has, has come and declared him. He's gone into the wilderness. He's begun his ministry. He's on the mountain. And this is really like, okay, here's my kingdom. Here's my campaign. Here's what I'm doing. As if a, a president who would just give his inaugural address and saying, hey, here's where I'm going and here's what it's going to look like. Um, that's what Jesus is doing. It's his inaugural address. It's, it's, it's his kingdom ethics, the Beatitudes here, it's kingdom warnings. It's the kind of kingdom that Christ is bringing about. That's what we're studying. And it's so upside down from the broken world around us. And praise God for that. And so we focus on this. We seek this. We seek his kingdom. We're in his word. We study. We, we become ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5 says, of his kingdom. Representing what he has done in our hearts and our lives. And we get to share that with other people. It is a life, the Christian life, is getting to be a part of his kingdom, seeking it, and being an ambassador of it for others. And so as I focus on his kingdom, I got work to do, right? I got work to do in listening to his marching orders for my life, not trying to control it. Because you know the most comforting thing about, about seeking his kingdom, the most comforting thing about his kingdom to me, is that he is king and not me. That's the most comforting thing about his kingdom. He is king and not me. When I play king, which I do all the time, it's my default setting. I forget and I slip back into I want to be king, I want to control. When I do that, I am wrought with worry. Anxiety rises because I'm not designed to be king. You are not designed to be king. What's it mean? When it says, seek his righteousness, seek his kingdom, seek his righteousness, God's righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it so beautifully. He, God, made him who knew no sin, we know that to be Jesus, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we have a king, because of the gospel, his death burial, and resurrection, we now have a king who has imputed his righteousness on those who have said, yes, I surrender to you. You are my king. You belong in the throne. I put my faith in you and you alone. And in doing that, the gospel becomes this thing that changes everything in my life, right? If, if he is not king, right, then, then I lose focus. But that's what he came to do. That's what the gospel is. And the gospel is, is not just a one-time thing that I've said, right? The gospel is not just a, a belief that I acknowledge. The gospel should not just be a belief that we say, yeah, I, I believe Jesus. I believe, I believe Jesus did, did what he said he was doing. The gospel is this thing that gets lived out in the depths of my heart every day. And every day I push deeper and deeper because of the gospel. You are king, not me. And then my worry comes up, but what about this? What about this? But you are king and you are good. And look at your record, and I will trust. I'll be wise and discerning, but I will trust the things that I can't control to this king. But what about this? I will remember, and I will press the gospel of Jesus deeper and deeper and deeper. And so often, we just stay in the shallow end. Or we've, we've said, okay, the gospel is just the box that I check, and it's not the box you check. Nowhere in Scripture does he say, yeah, just all you got to do is just check the box. He says, come and follow. He says, pick up your cross. 
Paul says he's been crucified with Christ and it's no longer his life. He lives. He lives faith in the one who loves him, gave himself up for him. His life belongs to the king and, and that is at the source of how I find freedom from anxiety, knowing that I'm not on the throne. Seeking his kingdom with all I have and when I find myself crawling back up on the throne where I don't belong, I say, God, you're good and you're so much better there than I am. Are we all into that? Is a part of your anxiety, maybe perhaps, because you've tried to compartmentalize Christ or the gospel to just a category of belief you have and not a lifestyle you live submitted, submitted to the one who loved you and gave himself up for you, who knew no sin but hung on a cross and died for us so that we might have righteousness imputed to us, given to us, not because we earned it, but just given to us by this God. Talk about what he's provided for us. Talk about what he's provided for us. He's provided his righteousness. I don't deserve that. I know me. You might not know me. I know me. I don't deserve his righteousness. And yet that's what we get through the gospel. That's what you get through the gospel. You didn't earn it. You couldn't fix it yourself. So practically, hold on to the gospel. Dig into his righteousness that's given to you through the work of Christ on the cross. Remember what he's done. Reject the lies that the world wants to bury you in anxiousness of. And then the last and maybe a really important thing, definitely a really important thing to remember is this. Freedom from anxiety is not just this quick fix, right? It's not just a quick fix. We said that at the beginning. It is a muscle, peace, faith. These are muscles that we build, right? It's, it's fruit that God bears as we stay connected to him. We, we build these muscles and we build it every day. This perspective that Christ is commanding of us that is a solution to anxiety, it's designed to be exercised every day. It's not just a sermon we hear or a time that our devotional just happened to be in Matthew 6 or Philippians 4 that we find freedom from anxiety and, and rest in him. It's, a, it's an exercise every day that I do this. Look at Matthew 6, 34, the, the last verse in this chapter. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. This isn't made for tomorrow. This perspective isn't made for tomorrow. It's made for today. Don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. In the Lord's Prayer, earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he gives us that in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. This idea that this is a daily thing we do. It's a marathon in ways. Um, tomorrow morning, we wake up, and all those troubles are still there. My genuine hope and prayer is that we hear God's word and the spirit takes it and we walk out of here remembering and exalting and, and protecting ourselves from some of these worries that we can't control and, and focusing on him and what he's done and his kingdom and how we can be a part of it and how we can shape our lives around it and there's freedom in that. But I know, brothers and sisters, tomorrow morning, there it is again. There it is again. And tomorrow morning, would you go and meet with him again? And Wednesday afternoon, as it rises up, would you say, no, I'm going to remember what he's done and I'm going to filter out the way the Gentiles think, the way the non-believing world, I'm going to filter that out and I'm just going to seek his kingdom. That is the perspective that 
Christ offers to say, find freedom, don't be anxious. And then I get up and I do it again and I do it again and I do it again. And listen to me, you're not alone. The body of Christ, you are not alone if you feel so stuck in that. If that seems exhausting, don't be exhausted. Just step into it today. And then tomorrow morning, he'll be there because he's always been there. He doesn't know how to abandon us. That's not in his character. Father, we love you and we love how you love us. You love us so well and so perfectly. And So God, anxiety is, is so prevalent in all of our lives in different shapes and different forms and different symptoms of worry. But God, you give us a map. You've provided. you brought comfort. Help us remember. Help us filter. Help us stay in your word. Remember what's true. And God, would we keep our eyes fixed on you. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.